All right. We're in Matthew chapter 3 today. Look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. But as usual, we're going to look over the last time we went through Matthew and going to see how well you remembered what we talked about last time. All right. Um, last time we talked about free will quite a bit. And we talked about first, before we talk about what free will is, we talked about what it is not. Can anyone tell me one thing that free will is not? Jenna? Very good, very good. Anybody else? Daniel? Okay, not ability to do whatever I want to do. Right, right. If I want to fly to the moon, can I do it? And just because I can't fly to the moon doesn't mean I don't have free will? Oh, right. Uh, any, anyone else have anything that free will was not? Jenna? That's right. Free will does not mean that sin is not destructive, addicting, or hard to overcome. There's one other thing we talked about, Daniel. That's right. Free will does not mean you're left alone without any influence in either direction, or in both directions, for that matter. All right. Uh, so what is free will, then? What we talked about, what is free will? Can you give me a good definition of free will. Jenna? That's right. That's right. Very good. Very good. Uh, it's the ability to choose between two things, two different, two opposite things, right or wrong, moral right and moral wrong. That's the ability given to us by God. What kind of prophecy did we learn about last week? A specific kind of prophecy. Okay? Um, That's direct prophecy. That's one of them. What was the other one we learned about that we talked about more often than the other one? Jenna? Parallel or type prophecy. And what is a parallel or type prophecy? It's a prophecy that's already come to pass, and later on a similar event takes place, so it's like a parallel fulfillment of the original prophecy. That's right. right. So something that's already taken place in the original context in the Old Testament, it's already been fulfilled there, but something that parallels in the New Testament is, a, is uh, it's actually fulfilling there as well. So the Old Testament was a type or shadow of something happening in the New Testament as well. <clears throat> Why does God often direct us step by step? or a little at a time, instead of telling us all that he wants to do at once. Jenna? Yeah, we might jump ahead of him a little bit. So he goes piece by piece, little by little. How does being a Nazarene fit in with the rest of the life of Jesus? Remember, Nazareth was a town that was despised by people. It was the home of a Roman garrison of soldiers. So it was de- you were despised if you were called if you're a Nazarene and you lived in Nazareth. So it fits with Jesus because he would have rejection and scorn and hatred all of his life. So it fits perfectly that he was not that he was born there, but that he was from there. It's where he grew up. <clears throat> Does the Bible promise us that we will be hated by G- uh, if we are walking as Jesus walked? It does promise that, yes. The Bible promises that we'll be hated if we walk just like Jesus walked. That's right. 
John 7, 7 says that Jesus was hated because he testified that works were evil. Well, there's several other passages that talked about how if we're following the Master, and we are his servant, if we are his student, and he's the teacher, and they were persecuted him, rejected him, they're going to persecute us and reject us. They called him Beelzebub, Jesus said, well, what would they do to us? All right, so we will be hated and rejected just like Jesus was. Is hatred or rejection something we should seek after, though? No. That's something we should seek after. Something's going to come to us naturally, though, if we are living the right thing. And if we aren't experiencing this hatred of the world or this persecution of the world in some degree, should we check ourselves? Yeah, we should check ourselves. That's right. That's right. All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 3 today. And let's see what verses 1 through 12 have to say for us. This one's going to be a little bit longer than it's been in the past, but there's a lot of important things to talk about here. Okay, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way to the Lord, and make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. <clears throat> then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in Jordan, confessing their sins. <clears throat> but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of their repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winding fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean, up, clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. All right. The first thing I want us to look at this morning in this morning's text is the content of John the Baptist's message. What did he preach on? What was the content of his message here? It's really important here. The first thing we see here is the word, it's our word here. It's become a dirty word to a lot of professing Christians. The word repent. Repent. What does this word mean exactly? Well, it's the Greek word metanoeo. Not to be confused with metanoia, which is repentance. But metanoeo literally means, when it's referring to a human being now, to change one's life based on, based on a complete change of attitude and thought concerning sin and righteousness. So repent means, once again, to change one's life based on complete change of attitude and thought concerning sin and righteousness. So where the sinner used to think, sin's okay, I'm all right. Righteousness, who wants that? Now he's changing his mind. He's thinking, I hate sin. I don't want nothing to do with it. I love righteousness. Give me, give me, give me. See how it switched around there? Completely changed. That's what repent means. So in layman's terms, it basically means that you decide in your heart and mind you don't want to sin anymore. That you want to obey God from here on out. Isn't it amazing? That's exactly what Jesus said. When Jesus didn't use the word repent in his message, he would use go and sin no more. John 5.14 says the man who he, healed, who he healed, who was lame since birth, he said, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing happen to you. John 8.11, the woman called him adultery, thrown at Jesus' feet. The condemners go away, she's there by Jesus, with Jesus by herself. He says, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. 
That's exactly what it means when he said, repent, go and sin no more. And isn't it kind of ironic that this is something that John the Baptist was preaching to people before the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And people were submitting to this preaching before the Holy Spirit came and indwelt believers. People were choosing to obey the preaching of John the Baptist without being regenerated. So the new covenant hadn't begun yet, because the new covenant begins when the death of the testator happens, and Jesus hadn't died yet. Hebrews 9, 15 through 16. And doesn't that go contrary to the theology we call Calvinism, which says you must be regenerated first, and then you have the ability now to obey God. But the Bible makes it clear before these people were regenerated, they were obeying the preaching of John the Baptist to repent, to go and sin no more. The second part of John's message might seem kind of weird to some people, though. But it's only weird because it's something that isn't preached on much in today's churches. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I'm going to spend most of our time this morning dealing with this kingdom of heaven issue and to, to understand what it actually means. You know, what does John the Baptist really mean when he says this? Well, the phrase kingdom of heaven occurs 32 times in the New Testament, and it's only in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. The phrase, the kingdom of God, occurs 68 times in 10 different New Testament books. That's a total of 90 times combined between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Now, is there any difference between the two? Kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven? Well, I don't think so. And let me show you why. So we go to Matthew chapter 19. What I want to show you through some passages right now is that these two terms are used interchangeably throughout the Bible and throughout Jesus' teaching. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. This is Jesus uh, talking to the young, rich ruler. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may inherit, may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but, God, but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall, not, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Surely I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, what we have left all and followed you. Therefore what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left sisters or bro- houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife for, or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now we see a lot of terms being combined together. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, salvation, eternal life, all used interchangeably throughout this passage. So they're all talking about the same concept and from Jesus' words here. Okay? Uh, not only are they use these two terms, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, used interchangeably here in this passage, but they're also used interchangeably throughout the other Gospels. Now, I'm not going to go to them. I'll just give you the references you can check out for yourself. Consider the parable of the sower. 
We see in Matthew 13.11, Mark 4.11, and Luke 8.10. And Matthew used kingdom of heaven, the other two used kingdom of God. Luke 8.10. In the parable of the mustard seed, compare Matthew 13.31 with uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 30, and Luke chapter 13, and verse 18. And one more example I'll give you is uh, the parable of the leaven. Compare Matthew 13.33 with Luke 13.20. Now we see with all these situations, they're found in these different Gospels, the same story, the same situation is obvious, but they're used, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, and used interchangeably. So obviously talking about the same thing. But it still doesn't answer our initial question. What, just what is the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God? And what does John mean when he says, it is at hand? At hand simply means it is near, or has drawn near. When the Jews heard this message, they knew it meant that their Messiah... Their Messiah was about to come. To the Jews at that time, it meant the overthrow of Rome. That's what they thought it meant when the Messiah came. That the Rome would be overthrown. They would have their independence back as a nation. And, uh, you know, they would, they would just like the time of David. Where they have their own nation back to themselves. But if that's their idea of the Messiah, it's no wonder that John's message caught the attention of so many Jewish people. Just listen to my verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 3. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I think we can realize that all the people actually went out there. This is obviously hyperbole being used here. Hyperbole is simply an exaggeration to prove a point. Uh, but hyperbole is used for a reason. Because they're trying to communicate, communicate to you that a lot of people came out. And a lot of people wanted to be freed from the Roman rule. And they wanted independence back as a nation. Yet if they thought that their Messiah was going to overthrow Rome, their enemy, and win back their independence for the nation, what does it tell us about the Jews as a whole? It tells us that they were deceived and have a false view of the Messiah. Did the Jews have a greater enemy than Rome? Was there a more important independence that they needed besides independence as a, as a country from Rome? Yes. Yes. Their greatest enemy was their sin. And that they were condemned under the old covenant of the law because of their sin. They needed independence from sin and from condemnation under the Old Testament law. Yet most of them didn't see this because they were too busy following the traditions of men instead of the word of God. And what do the traditions of men do to the word of God? That's right. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 6, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. When people begin to create traditions that are not from Scripture, bad things can happen. Over time, these unbiblical traditions begin to have a lot of authority in their, life, in their lives. So much authority that when someone comes to them with Scripture that clearly contradicts their unbiblical traditions, the Scripture has no effect on them. Because the traditions would have gotten a stronghold in their lives and their hearts, makes the word of God of no effect in their lives. They've been following the tradition of men for so long, they end up exalting them above the scriptures and try to force a tradition upon the scriptures and interpret and lather their traditions. And this is what happened to most of the Jews of Jesus' time, especially the religious leaders. So 
says they were the ones who were, were the most indoctrinated into the traditions of men. And when John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, how do you think the people would respond based on their traditions of men? They reject him. Because the word of God has no effect in their lives. But the word of God had an effect on certain people's lives, right? Who did it have an effect on? The people who, usually the most sinful people, because they weren't so indoctrinated to these traditions of men, which are not from the word of God. And they saw how sinful they were, they saw the need for a savior, their conscience wasn't seared by the traditions of men, and therefore the word of God could have an effect on their lives. But you know, John the Baptist didn't say anything about uh, coming against Rome, or either to Jesus, coming against Rome, like the zealous of his day did. He didn't form an army like King David in order to fight off the Romans. He even healed people who were close to Roman soldiers. In fact, Rome had nothing to do with why Jesus came. Or why John the Baptist came. Or why did Jesus come? Well, one reason, according to his own words, in Luke 4.43, was because I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I had been sent, to preach the kingdom of God. That's Luke 4.43. In fact, in Matthew 4.17, which we'll probably look at in a couple of weeks, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Matthew 4.23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So he's preaching out in the open air, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He goes into the synagogues and preaches the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus even commanded his disciples to preach the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 7. And he said, And as you go, preaching, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Must be a pretty important topic to preach on. In fact, the kingdom of God or heaven is probably the greatest and most prevalent thing throughout the scriptures in the New Testament. And uh, I think I've kept you in suspense long enough on what the actual kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven actually is. Well, each kingdom of this world has four main components. Number one, a ruler or a ruling body. Sometimes you'll have a king, sometimes you'll have an emperor, dictator, sometimes you'll have a senate, a congress, and a president. But there's a ruling body. Each kingdom in this world has a ruling body or a ruler. Each kingdom has a has subjects. The people who are under the rule of the authorities. Each kingdom has a domain. The area that encompasses the reign of the rulers. Sometimes the rulers expand their domain every once in a while. Sometimes they retract it. They lose wars. There's a domain. And then there's fourth one is the laws. The rules of the domain that must be obeyed by the subjects. Otherwise, punishment will come. And God's kingdom is no different. It has these four components as well. But there are some major differences within these four components. Number one, regarding the ruler or ruling body, there will never be a change in rulership for any reason. Not because of death, not because of sickness, not because of capture, not because of overthrowing the kingdom. Because Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords, and his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. So there will never be a change in the rulership. Number two, the subjects are not just, not just a certain race or group of people, like the Americans, the Germans, the British, etc. Galatians 3, 28-29 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. The domain or, or rule isn't limited to a certain area either, geographically on the globe. Christ rules over people from individual people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the sphere of his rule is the entire universe. It's not even limited to just the earth, or a certain part of the earth. And number four, the laws never change. Because the laws are a reflection of God's character. And God's character never changes. So that's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The actual subjects of the kingdom are all who have been genuinely born again. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You know, the people of Israel used to be the chosen nation of God. But now God's chosen nation isn't a certain uh, people in a specific geographic location or for a certain person and their descendants and their lineage. It's a group of people who voluntarily join the nation. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 21, 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God, talking to the Jews now, we taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. See, the Jews weren't bearing the fruits of the kingdom. They were following traditions of men and they weren't living holy lives. <clears throat> or as Paul said in Romans 11, verses 19-23. through 23. And I'm going to insert some words here so you know what he's talking about here. You, the Gentiles, will say then, branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they, the Jews, were broken off. And you, the Gentiles, stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jews, he may not spare you, the Gentiles, either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. And those who fell, the Jews, severity. But toward you, Gentiles, goodness, if you, the Gentiles, continue in his goodness. Otherwise you, the Gentiles, also will be cut off. And they, the Jews, also, if they, the Jews, do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. That's Romans chapter 11, verses 19 through 23. So as you can see, joining this nation is a choice you make. You don't become a part of this nation by your natural birth, in which you had no choice. You didn't choose when you would be born, who you'd be born to, what you would look like when you were born, or where in the world you would be born. However, being born again is a choice. And which kingdom you will belong to is a choice. Who you give your loyalty or allegiance to Satan or God is a choice. So being a part of this kingdom takes some action on your part. It doesn't just just happen because of who you were born to or where you were born or what you look like when you were born or because of some arbitrary choice in eternity passed by God. That's not the way it works. There's no 7 to 14 year waiting period to become a part of this kingdom. It happens instantaneously. You must simply repent, trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is the door to the kingdom, and become a lifelong, obedient citizen to the king. A law-abiding citizen. For this kingdom, according to Jesus, has been given to a nation of people who will 
bear the fruits of it. If you don't bear the fruits of it, the kingdom doesn't belong to you. You have no part and you have no inheritance in it. That is why John the Baptist also said in verses 8 through 10, and we just read it a minute ago, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's telling, listen man, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought they were part of the kingdom because they were from Abraham. Because of who they were born to. Some people today think they're, they're, they're Christians because of who they're born to, or because of how they're raised, or what household they're raised in, or because of what church they go to, what building they go to twice a week. No, no, no. You must bear the fruits of the kingdom. Because the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. And every tree does not bear fruits, cut down and thrown into the fire. You must bear fruit. They weren't living holy lives. Outwardly, they looked holy to everyone around them. And they were exalted as the most holy people around. But inwardly, they were filthy, wicked hypocrites. The outside of the cup was clean, but the inside of the cup was filthy. They had this, this appearance of white, clean, but inside full of dead man's bones. We have a lot of that today. We sure do. We sure do. So John the Baptist, also, he made it clear that you weren't a part of the kingdom of heaven just because you were born of a physical descendant of Abraham. No, no, no. God wasn't looking for people born from a certain person. God was looking for citizens to be obedient subjects of his kingdom. People who are holy in hearts, not just outwardly holy. And as I said, this is a choice that we must make. Must make. And if we truly want to be a part of his kingdom, we will make the choice. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 20 and 21. He said, Now when he, Jesus, was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God has not come with observation. You know what they say? See here, see there. For indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now the New King James Version translates within you here, at the end of verse 21. But my, my New King James Version has a little footnote there, and it has in the column, it says, in your midst. Okay, well, oftentimes we'll over-spiritualize this verse and say, well, it means it's actually within your heart, or Jesus living in your heart. But within you doesn't, if you look at the Greek, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's within you, your heart, or inside of someone. It simply means within the immediate area of the person being spoken to or within their grasp. And keep in mind, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here in Luke 17, 20-21. So I don't think it's even possible that they could be telling them the kingdom of God is within them. Because the kingdom of God is not within the Pharisees. They were hypocrites. They were not part of the kingdom. So I don't think that's really the best uh, translation here. I, I think what he's really telling them here, it's in their midst or within their grasp. In fact, the king of the kingdom was right in front of them talking to them. So it certainly is within their grasp. Listen to how Tertullian, the early church father from the beginning of the 200s, how he interpreted this verse. Now who is there who does not understand the phrase within you to mean in your hand or within your power? That is, if you hear and do the commandments of God. I agree. I concur with his interpretation of this passage. But so the Pharisees, who Jesus is talking to in this passage once again, had already written Jesus off as their Messiah. He's not the Messiah, he's from Nazareth, he doesn't, he doesn't raise up an army, he's not defeating the Romans. They had written him off, they had no part in his kingdom. Yet he was still offering it to them. He was still offering it to them. He said, listen, just take it. You can still be a part of it. The kingdom of God is yours to take if you'll but just receive me as your king, 
as your Messiah and become law-abiding citizens of my kingdom. This is the offer God makes to every sinner. This is the offer we make to sinners when we're in open air. The problem is most people just love their sin too much to become a citizen of God's kingdom. Or think that they're a part of God's kingdom when they truly are not a part of God's kingdom. Many people are deluded into thinking that. And what a great delusion that'll be on Judgment Day. What a great delusion that'll be. So, that is what the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, is according to Scripture. There's four parts. And becoming part of it is by choice. We have to become law-abiding, so it's about bearing the fruits of the kingdom. And since this is one of the main themes of John's preaching, of Jesus' preaching, of the apostles' preaching in the open air, it should also be one of the main themes of our preaching in the open air. Not necessarily that we need to mention kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven by those words, but we should be preaching the principles behind these words. That there is a universal, absolute king. That he rules over all the earth, whether they think he does or not. That he's coming back. They can be a part of his kingdom if they will just decide today to start being a law-abiding citizen and trust the atonement that he offers. That his offer is available to any and to all. And that if you continue to be a rebel in his kingdom, you'll be cast into an eternal jail cell called hell. This should be a crucial part of our message when we're whether preaching open air or sharing one-to-one with people who are not Christians, very important concept to talk about. A couple more things I want to point out about John's message here. One, he spoke pretty harshly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees here. In verse 7, he called them a brood of vipers. A brood is just like a your children. They're children of vipers. Now, who do they claim to be children of? Abraham. Who's the father of the faith? But John the Baptist said, you're not children of Abraham. If you're children of Abraham, you'd bear the fruits of the kingdom. But you're children of, your brood of vipers. And which viper do you think John the Baptist is associating them with here? Yeah. And it's the same thing Jesus called them. Jesus called them children of their father the devil. And this is a big insult to them. Not only is he saying, not only is he, I think he's assimilating them with, with Satan, and he's doing their work and not God's work, but he's simply saying they're poisonous. Vipers are poisonous snakes. Some people think, and I don't know if this is true or not, biologically, scientifically, but some people think that viper children eat their way out of their mother. That's how wicked the brood of vipers are. No, they, they, they get so tired of being in there, they eat their way out. Like I said, I don't know if this is this is true scientifically, but people have that's what I've been I've read about. But but these people were, were po- had poison, they had venom, or their yeast, as Jesus later called it, was deadly to anyone who followed them. In fact, they would travel over land and sea to make one convert, and that convert, according to Jesus, become twice the son of hell that they were. That's Matthew chapter twenty-three and verse fifteen. John the Baptist considered these men to be venomous snakes, and so did Jesus. He called them the brood of vipers in Matthew 23, 3. But either way, they considered themselves children of Abraham, not children of vipers. But as I said earlier, being physical descendants of Abraham does not make you a child of the promise. Children of the promise are those who follow in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. Those are the ones who are children of the promise. So since John was harsh at times, we, too, should be harsh at times. 
the person we are talking to will determine what manner we should speak to them. And John and Jesus had the hardest, the harshest words for the hypocrites. And so should we. The harshest words for the hypocrites. One last thing to notice about here about John's message is that he, you know, he wasn't whispering. You look at the look at the exclamation point, uh, the punctuation at the end of verse two, at the end of the first sentence in verse seven. What's the, what's the punctuation there? It's an exclamation point. It means he wasn't going whispering to them. He was proclaiming loudly, lifting up his voice, crying aloud, sparing not, like a trumpet. He wasn't whispering to them. He was speaking loudly. There was much volume or emphasis in his preaching. So I just got to say, when the critics of the open air preachers say, "Well," You're just screaming, you're yelling. That's not the way to reach out to people. You're going about it the wrong way. But what do you think they would have said to John the Baptist? The same thing. What do you think they would have said to Jesus when he's speaking to 5,000 men plus women and children, probably 15,000, 20,000 people? He wasn't whispering either. Jesus, you're speaking too loud. You're driving people away. You're talking too loud. You're screaming and yelling. Just do one-to-ones with everybody. It's more effective that way. They didn't have that amplification back then, for sure. And, you know, I'm not saying that one-to-one conversation is wrong, that we, shouldn't, that we should be yelling or speaking loudly at all times. I mean, not by any means. But I am saying this, that most friendship evangelists would not like John the Baptist at all. They wouldn't like Jesus either. And one more thing I'll point out about John's message here, what he says in verse 12. He preached on judgment. A separation of two groups of people, the wheat and the tares. He preached on hell. Fire. Unquenchable fire now. Not fire that will be quenched, that will go out eventually. As some people will say. Unquenchable fire. A fire that always has something to burn. Doesn't run out of fuel. So he preached on these things. And if John had asked to preach on judgment and hell, so should we. So should we. John had a specific calling in life that no one else in the rest of the history ever had. To be the forerunner for the Messiah, the first coming of the Messiah. To be the public crier. He went to the public places and proclaimed, the king is coming. The king is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, that means to Jews, the Messiah is coming. That's what it means to them. But you know what? Our calling is very similar to John the Baptist. As Christians living in this day and age. We don't proclaim the first coming of the Messiah. We proclaim the second coming. <laughs> I said, made no He's not coming as a baby in a manger this time. He's not coming as a suffering servant to lay down his hand to the, lay down his life in the hands of lost men, let them beat him and bruise him again and nail him to a cross again. Come back as a conquering king. He's going to destroy his enemies. And we are to be the public criers to announce the second coming of the king, which is imminent, which we're always to be watching, to be ready. Of course we have the signs, but we need to be watching and ready. And the king, we claim the second coming of the king in two senses. One, possibly into the hearts and lives of our listeners. They can come into their, their lives. And they allow him to be the king. That coming into their lives. And two, like I just said, as a conquering king. To set up a literal, physical kingdom on earth, which will last forever and ever. And then there's John's manner of life. Did he live on a, in a castle on a hill? With a moat around it? 
and lots of money and fancy clothing, the purple robes and crown on his head? Did he drive a Rolls Royce? Did he say, sow your seed into our ministry and God will give you back a hundredfold? No, he, he didn't do those things. He didn't have metal detectors at the, beginning, at the front of his church with this big building that cost billions of, millions of dollars to build. No, no, that's not what John the Baptist's life was about. He lived very frugally. I'm not saying we should all go live out in the hills, in the mountains, live in caves and wear camel's hair and leather belt around our waist and eat locusts and wild honey. But he had his priorities straight regarding things that moth and rust will destroy. Because it'll destroy a lot of things that people are holding on to their dear life. One of my friends, Eric Nixon, once said to me, he said, listen, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. The things of this world can't be taken with you. The Egyptians tried to bury their riches with their pharaohs. Did the pharaohs have their riches in the afterlife? Of course not. So we need to have our, our priorities straight when it comes to things that moth and rust will destroy that we can't take into eternity. Remember, we were aliens and strangers on this planet. We do not belong to the kingdom of this world. We belong to the, another kingdom, which are waiting to be set up here on earth. And the last thing I want to point out about John's message is what we see in verse 11. Let's just read that one more time. Let's see what he says here. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You know, John understood his place in this world. He was humble. Even though he was the only person in all of history to have this position he had, the forerunner of the first coming Messiah, he didn't let it get to his head. He didn't take advantage of this call or this position he had or God put him on. If the devil can't get you to cheat on your wife, to fornicate, to get drunk, to lie, to steal, to lust, to cheat, to kill, to become a homosexual, he will try his best to get you to be prideful. Very subtly. But he'll try his best to get you to become prideful. And that'll lead to more sin and greater sin. Your blinders are on now. You can't see it. It's coming. The devil gets a foothold. He's barging in. He'll do his best to get in there. Prideful about what you've done or about your skills or about your abilities prideful about who you are and what you're doing for God, having a desire to be popular and seeking after it, wanting people to look at you and say, wow, look at that guy. Look at her. No, we should have this attitude. I could care less whether, whether or not anyone ever remembers my name or who I was or what I did. I want them to remember Jesus Christ when you think about me. That's what our attitude should be. Not about who I am or what I did, but about Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. And just like John the Baptist realized his place in God's plan, we should realize our place in God's plan. When Christ started His ministry, what did, what did John the Baptist say? He said, I must decrease. He must increase. He realized his popularity was going to go down. He was losing followers left and right. But he knew it was coming, and he was humble about it. And just like John the Baptist was constantly pointing to the Savior, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, so should we be constantly pointing people to the Savior. Amen?
All right, well, next week uh, we'll continue in Matthew 3 and maybe get into Matthew 4. Uh, have to study that some more to see how far we're going to go into it. The week after next, I'll be going out of town, preaching and teaching in Kansas. So be in prayer for me about that. I'll be doing on Thursday and Friday of that week. I'll be taking a young man and some other young men to the college campuses in Kansas, probably Kansas, University of Kansas, Kansas State University, or Washburn University. On Saturday, I'll be doing an evangelist seminar at the church there. Probably a couple of churches coming together to join. And the young man is putting this all together. He has a father who's a pastor and a father-in-law who's a pastor. They're going to get both the churches to come together to do the seminar. And then on Sunday morning, I'll be... Uh, preaching at a church, one of those churches, and uh, looking forward to that. So if you can remember that in your prayers, your daily prayers, I'd appreciate that. And I'm just looking, uh, maybe if you're if you thought about it, maybe fast, I'm planning on doing that myself. really want to see a move of God in these churches and and uh, see some real evangelists get out there and do what they're supposed to be doing. The young man who's having become, who's set himself up, has been watching my videos for a long time, my open-air preaching videos, been out there doing it himself. And uh, he's he's hoping for a big move of God there, too. So let's just pray and expect for God to move in, amongst his people. And I've, I've checked out one of the church's websites, and uh, they're holy people. They care about holiness, obeying God, and that's a good place to start. It's a good place to start. All right. Um, now that I've gone through all that information, do you have questions or objections? Or anything like that, Bill Tracy? Yes. So basically, uh, what you're saying, you know, the Bible says, is that a lack of obedience reflects a lack of belief. Yeah, I think Romans 11 makes it clear that they, they, they were cut off because of unbelief, and their unbelief was due to their lack of obedience. And a true belief will have obedience, like James says. Faith without works is dead. So if you, even if you have a, some kind of faith, like the demons do, it's not going to save unless it produces fruit to repentance. Jesus said the same thing in John 15. Right. Yeah. He sure did. The, the, the fruit, the vines, the branches, and uh, you know, that was, Romans 11 ties along very well with that. Those Jews were cut off. But they, while they're still alive, they can be grafted back in. They're not thrown into the fire yet. And that's why John the Baptist, he, he said, he didn't say you're definitely going to hell. He said, they actually lay at the root of the trees. He said, listen, man, this time is short. If your tree doesn't start producing fruit, it's going to come down because it's worthless to the, to the vine dresser or for the orchard person to take care of the orchard, the husbandman. It's good for nothing. I'm going to take that out and throw it into the fire and plant something else there. It's worthless. Even the prodigal son ties into all that, too. It's so amazing that all these concepts all tie into that and so many people professing to be Christians just seem to be completely blind to it I think what it is they just don't want to see it yeah yeah I, I agree part of it is that they're like the people at that time one of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees who were the most blind because they indoctrinated people and they were the teachers of these doctrines and their traditions of men which nullified or made the word of God no effect in their lives and in other people's lives the ones who are least, the least indoctrinated are the ones who are most open to the truth. That's what I see in the open air, too. The professing Christians, they're not open to the truth. The people who are atheists and homosexuals and fornicators and drunkards, they're more open to the truth than the professing Christians. It's like Jesus said to the Pharisees. The, the, they're, the prostitutes and pastors are entering the kingdom of God before you. 
And it shouldn't burn them to jealousy, but because they're so blinded, it doesn't. So part of the, the problem with professing Christians is they're so blinded because of what they're being taught. The other problem is that they love their sin, and they want to hold on it to the very end. But if they want to do that, that that's their choice, and they're going to have to, there'll be consequences for it. And we're just uh, obligated to continue to warn them as much as we can in love. Yeah, and, and just to go along with that, John, Revelation 16, verse 15 says, Behold, as Jesus is speaking here, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he, walk, he, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And then also again in Revelation chapter 19, and verse 7, talking about the, the marriage here. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now compare this to these people who will say that the righteousness we have is this righteousness that Jesus lived while he's perfect on earth and is transferred to us, and all God can see now is Jesus' righteousness upon us. That's the, that's the fine linen. That's our wedding garment. And what does it say here in verse 8? The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And the blood of Jesus Christ does cleanse you from your past sins. But Jesus' righteousness that he lived on earth is not personally given to you, transferred to you, so you can be white and clean in God's eyes. No, God it will cleanse you of your past sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, but you must walk. You must walk it. You must make yourself ready. And the clean and bright fine linen that we are arrayed in at the very end is a fine linen, is a righteous acts of the saints. Living a righteous life. And if you're not, you don't have fine linen. You're not arrayed in white. Your, your, your garment is stained. It needs to be cleansed again through the blood of Jesus Christ. Is that part of Calvinism? It sure is. I mean, we were taught that the God doesn't see you, he only sees you. Once you're saved, 
you're not even seen anymore. But, yeah, but this, this, all your sins are covered, you know, with his blood, so no matter what you do, God only sees the righteousness of Christ. Yes. That's part of Calvinism. That's part of their, their their view of imputation is what it's called, and their view of the atonement. They think imputing means transferring. For example, they'll say that Adam's sin was transferred to us, then we personally sin because of Adam's sin, and then when Christ died on the cross, our personal sin was put upon Jesus. Literally, he became sinful on the cross, which means he's not a, blame, a sinless a Savior now. He's a sinful Savior. And then his personal sinlessness was transferred to us. But that's not how it works. I mean, imputation doesn't mean transfer. Imputation means that you're, you're accounted as, that when you become a Christian, God considers you as if you had never sinned. Because the blood of Jesus Christ, when we did a cross, washes away your sin, cleanses you of your sin. So it's not a matter of God not seeing your sin from there on out. I mean, what would be the point of 1 John 1, 9, which is written to Christians, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What happens if you don't confess? You're not forgiven, you're not cleansed. So that, that verse is irrelevant. I mean, that, that should be spoken to, to lost sinners. I mean, it shouldn't be spoken to, to saints, to people who are Christians, because what, what, what's the point of confessing your sins if you already, God doesn't see it anyway, and you're already forgiven it ahead of time anyway? No, forgiveness is con- conditional upon your continual repentance and continual confession and walking in wholeness before Him. Yes. Well, it depends on how you define works. Uh, works in the Bible is not, is not defined as something you do. Because we all, I mean, all except for Calvinists, maybe we have to do something. You have to at least have faith. Even the Calvinists will say, well, God gives you the gift of faith, but you still have to do it. A lot of them will say that. So we have to do something to be saved. But doing something to be saved isn't works. Works is earning your salvation. My, the thing, repenting, confessing, having faith, living holy, don't earn me salvation. You know, but also you're saved by grace through faith. So there's this channel, there's grace over here, you're over here. The channel of grace comes through is through faith. But it must be a working faith. And a working faith produces works, produces obedience. And as long as that faith is working, that channel between you and grace is always there. But if you begin to have a lack of faith or a non-working faith, that channel is broken. You no longer have access to the grace that you need because you're saved by grace through faith. So he must do something. God expects us to do something. But that doing of that will not save us. I mean, here's an example. Let's say Christ never died on the cross, never shed his blood. But we decided to repent of our sins, trust in Christ, and follow him in obedience. We never sinned again the rest of our days. Could we be forgiven of our past sins? We still need an atonement. No amount of repentance, faith, and holiness will ever forgive you of your past sins. In the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That's Hebrews 9.22. So we must have the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, we can't be forgiven. We can't be cleansed. Let me project this work thing, works thing a little further. Sure. Okay, we're saying that we cannot work to gain our salvation. Sure. But isn't what you're saying that we have to work to keep it? No, we don't have to work to keep it. We supposed to have a faith which works to keep it. Yes, because that's what God got you in the first place, was faith. But no matter how much faith, like I said, no matter how much faith I have, no matter how many works I do, without the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm still helpless and hopeless as a sinner, a lost sinner going my way to hell. 
Because no matter no matter uh, no amount of holiness and faith repentance is going to save me from my past sins. So in other words, works can't save you, and works cannot keep your salvation. It depends on how you define works. Once again, works I define works from the Bible as trying to earn salvation. Yeah, you can't. The Jews, for example, when when Paul is coming us in the Book of Galatians, they're trying to get forgiveness for their past sins, not for the blood atonement of Jesus Christ, but by doing these things like being circumcised, etc. These things will not save you. The blood of Jesus Christ saves you. Yes, you must walk in holiness. That holiness no man will see the Lord. So, holiness doesn't mean in the Bible. It couldn't mean unless you're going to have contradictions all over the place. It couldn't mean doing something to be saved. Because you're required to do something. I mean, everybody, even people who believe in once they've always said, at least believe you must have faith. At least at one point in time in the past. So if we're going to define works as doing something, which the Bible doesn't define as that, then everyone believes in works, obviously, for those who believe that God forces you to do everything. That's why Calvinists come to this position, because they misunderstand works is. They think works is doing anything. That's not If you do anything, then it's not grace. So they think, well, God does it all. Well, that, that's not biblical. So those are the, you know, the two extremes you have there. You have those who say God does it all, and those who say, well, faith is all I need one time, one moment in the past, and I'm good to go no matter what. Let me ask another question. Okay. There is a teaching that goes something like this. There is faith for righteousness. Mm-hmm. There is a measure, or the measure of faith, not a measure, but the measure of faith, a specific measure of faith that is granted unto an individual to be saved. But after that, there is no such thing as personal faith. That faith is a person, it's not a thing that you do. In other words, once you receive the measure of faith to be saved, from that point on, there's no such thing as you exercising your personal faith. That personal faith no longer exists. This is a false teaching that you must exercise your faith in order to walk effectively in Christ. It's no longer your faith. It's his faith in you that is working. You follow what I'm saying? Whether you yeah. agree with it or not. Yeah, I follow what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Comment on that. Well, I guess the first question I would have is this. Is, is, is God granting this faith to everybody? And if not, then he's still picking and choosing who's going to have faith and who isn't. Again, what I'm saying is they're saying that faith is no faith is a person. Yeah. It's not something that you do. Well, that's not biblical whatsoever. I mean, the Bible never describes faith as a person. Uh, he is my object of my faith. He's not the person. He's faith not. Is the substance of things hoped for. We hope for Jesus. The evidence of things not seen. We have not seen him. Right, but but faith is still something you must do. The Bible never describes you as as, ha- as as people as having a faith and not being able to lose it, or faith now becomes a person. I have my faith in a person, but my faith is my faith. I have to choose to decide to to follow him to leave. It's no longer his faith working in us; it's our faith working. It's both and, not either or. Okay. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's he that works in you to do all. His, I can read it real quick. That's in uh, Hebrews, I believe. Work out your salvation. Is that in Hebrews, John? Yeah. But it's both and. There's there's a synergistic relationship here. Uh, God is working in you, but you must cooperate with it. Um, 
people go different directions. I think it's all people or it's all, all I, I, God. I, I'm in agreement with you, but there are people that are saying that's sure. faith. Right, I understand. Yeah, uh, faith is, you must continue in the faith, must persevere to the end. I mean, it's in Philippians. I think it's actually in Philippians. I guess what I'm saying is faith and obedience synonymous terms. Faith, true faith, and obedience are synonymous, synonymous terms. The people who have faith, they're demonic faith, according to James. Yeah. The demons believe and they tremble. Right. People have even worse than demonic faith. They, they believe in Jesus, so they say, but they don't even tremble. And they definitely obey him. They don't produce works for salvation. So uh, works doesn't give you salvation. Uh, faith is what brings salvation into your life, but it's only by the grace of God that we have salvation available to us through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice on the but cross. it's not works that keeps your salvation either. A faith, faith keeps your salvation, a working faith. Uh, so salvation, faith must produce works. If faith doesn't produce works, good works, holiness, obedience, that faith is a dead faith. It's a worse than demonic so faith. Faith is really not your faith that you're exercising after you're saved is not a work. No. Faith is exercising belief in Christ, belief in his word, and what comes from that, what flows from that, is good works, obedience. I mean, as a Christian, I'll sit around all day and think about things I can and can't do. I, just, I have faith in Christ. I fix my eyes. I'm the author and perfecter of my faith. And I have intimate communion with him. And from that flows a life of obedience to God, a life that produces fruits like divine, it says in John 15. If you abide in me, you'll produce much fruit. But if you don't abide in me, remain in me, you won't produce much fruit. But the fact that people can depart from the faith or be cut off or fall away means they can lose the faith. And uh, if, if what this teaching says is true... Then who lost the faith? Jesus? I mean, Jesus can't lose the faith. We have to lose the faith. This means it's conditional. Jesus' faith, what is his faith Well, there are those that are saying that exactly that, that it's no longer a verb, it's a noun. Pronoun. Something I, w- I wanted to point out, what you just brought it back around to is what I wanted to point out this whole time, is when you look at that parable of the fruit and the vine, uh, look at a grapevine, for instance. Uh, the grape is not the originator of the grapevine. Right? It's the, the result of the grapevine. And where are the branches? The branches are not the originator of the grapevine, but the, but the vine itself is the originator of the roots. So if, you look, if you really look at that parable closely... You'll see that the vine produces the branches, right? And then the branches produce the fruit as a result of being connected to the vine. So our works do not bring us to salvation, but is an effect or result of already having salvation in Christ Jesus. So as long as we abide in Him, He will abide in us, and we will produce fruits of works. And that's where that's how I, that's how I reconcile the whole issue is with that parable, and it also goes really well with uh, James, where it says uh, faith without works is dead. So you can have faith, but if you're not going to show any works as a result of that faith, then that only proves that you're not a you're not in connection with Jesus, you're not abiding in Him, and therefore you're not abiding in Him. He's not abiding in you, and your faith is dead. So the key word here is proof. It's proof. It's evidence of right. your salvation, but it's not uh, its not in salvation in itself. If you have salvation, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you will produce fruit. 
Uh, if you don't produce fruit, it's just evidence that you're not in connection with Jesus Christ. It's like Jesus Christ said, that you will know them by their fruits. Talking about false teachers. Well, I think it's the same thing with, with false, false believers. You can know a false believer by, by their fruit. If they're producing fruits of sin, of unrighteousness, then you know what tree they're part of. They're part of the tree of Satan. Uh, but if they're producing good works, uh, good fruits of righteousness, then that's proof that they're from the good tree, which is Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that passage in Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's our part. Since for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So there's both parties working there. That's Philippians 2, 12 through 13. And then, regarding this uh, this tree thing, some people will say um, that this tree thing is just an involuntary thing on your part. Uh, whatever tree you are, you'll just produce the fruits of it. That's kind of what Calvinism teaches. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad, and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by fruit. So you have the power to change what kind of tree you're going to be. And that word abide in John 15 is the Greek word meno, and it literally means remain. And if I tell John, remain in the car, John, first of all, he has to be in the car to be, to be free and said to him. It makes sense. And then secondly, he has to choose. He can, that means he has the ability to get out of the car. So for Jesus to say, remain in me, and I in you, means, first of all, you're in him. Second of all, you can leave him, because you have the ability to leave him. Otherwise, it would be a worthless command, a worthless warning to remain in him. So, you, like Trey said, it all comes back to what you're a part of. And uh, it's your choice whether you're a part of the good tree or bad tree, whether you produce good fruit or bad fruit. It all comes back to your belief, your faith. Uh, whether you're walking in the faith of Jesus or not. That's good questions. There's a lot of that's going around, unfortunately, Bill. Anybody else? We're in Matthew chapter.